seems to me that we've had so many new people come over the last year that when I teach, it's probably good for me to introduce myself. Uh, my name's Brian Sheely. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the executive pastor. I'm also the dean of Christ Theological Seminary. So if you're ever interested in uh, taking a course or uh, auditing one or maybe even applying for a degree program, uh, I would love to talk to you sometime. Also want to tell you that the outline that you have, the uh, scripture reference might be from the Apocrypha or something. It's a it should be Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, not chapter 2. I also just wanted to let you know that, uh, you know, time to time we have things in the body of Christ that are going on that uh, it's wonderful to come together as a church. We have three families that are moving Saturday. So if, uh, if you want to put your moving shoes on and uh, uh, come and help, uh, let me know. And there's probably several other people that are around here that can let you know of, a, of how to get in touch with one of these families that's moving. I just think what a beautiful thing is it is, a church our size, you ought to be able to knock out somebody's move in half a day, you know, <laughs> if we can all come together. So, well, let me pray for us as we get going this evening. Lord God, we are so grateful for your loving kindness towards us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sometimes, Lord, we just say those words, we take it for granted, uh, may even not even think about it, Lord. But we pray that tonight, that as we mention the name Jesus, that we would be reminded of the, the life, the suffering that we, we studied uh, this past weekend about the uh, death and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you intercede on our behalf, that you are an advocate, that you are our mediator, and that we have no fear of condemnation. Oh, it's, it's just amazing that we know that we've sinned against you this day, and yet we have perfect forgiveness and a just and righteous standing before the judge of the universe our Creator, our God, our Savior. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you've been a Christian for very long, you're aware of Jesus' command called the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. When we think about the Great Commission, we need to remember that it came right after the events of uh, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and then shortly thereafter Jesus appears and he sends his disciples into the world to make disciples. And so there's a, a great excitement and anticipation as they begin on this, this ministry with probably lots of fear and trembling as well as their, uh, their bid to go into the uttermost parts of the earth. That command reads this way, it says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I would say, given Jesus' commands there, that the indispensable responsibility of the church is to make disciples. But what is a disciple? In short, a disciple is a Christian. And a Christian is a disciple. You can't be one without the other. 
Some people may be surprised to learn that disciple was the term that the followers of Jesus had way before the term Christian even came to be. In Acts chapter 11, verses 20, or verse 19 through 26, we see some of the disciples coming to Antioch. And the Lord Jesus is preached, and a number of people come to believe, and they turn to the Lord. Barnabas arrives, and a considerable number, it says, are brought to the Lord. Saul joins him there, and for an entire year they met with the church and taught them. And in verse 26 it says this, There the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So they were only known as disciples of Jesus for about 15 years after His resurrection. And it's fascinating that the word Christian is only used two other times in the New Testament. So we, only, we go by Christian, but we only have three times that it's used in the Bible. And that's in Acts chapter 26, verse 28, and 1 Peter 4, 16. Now, Christian is a great name. It came because of their association with Christ. And we want to be associated with the Lord Jesus Christ too, don't we? The problem with the term, though, is that it has come to be a religious term. And it designates denominations that sometimes bear no resemblance whatsoever to the teachings of the Bible. Anybody can claim to be a Christian. Now, I'm not saying we should abandon the term Christian, but I think it's good for us to recover the primary name, disciple. The Gospel of Matthew uses the term disciple 74 times, just in the one Gospel. And the terms mostly used in the epistles are saints. In the New Testament we see that 60 times, saying that we are separate people. We are separated up, up unto the Lord Jesus. And 13 times we see that we are called believers. And many more times there are people who have believed or people who have faith. But this is why the early church began to be called Christians was because they were disciples who learned from Jesus Christ. That's what disciple means. Disciple means someone who learns from another person. And it also involves being associated with somebody's teachings. So it's no doubt that's the reason they were called Christians, because they were learners of Jesus. It's interesting that uh, 3 John 1.7 says that they went out for the sake of the name. They were followers of the way. They were, they were followers for the sake of the name, Jesus. They were believers. They were saints. And that is why they were called Christians. In the command of the Great Commission, we see, therefore, that it is a command to make disciples. But what is the process of making disciples? Well, a person becomes a disciple by hearing good news about Jesus. They see their need of Jesus. They, they see that they are sinners. He's a holy God. They're uh, liable to receive the judgment and condemnation of God and uh, an eternal experience of wrath for the punishment of their sins. 
and they repent from sin, they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are saved. And it should be true that they would quickly be baptized, not because baptism saves, but baptism shows that you are becoming one of his disciples, that you are saying before everyone, I want to associate myself with Jesus as his follower. And if you haven't been baptized, man, what an exciting thing to do. What, what an important thing to do, to, to lay yourself on the line and say, I don't care who knows about it, people at work, people in my family, no matter who it is, I want them to know that I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I follow his teaching. A true believer then begins to learn. They begin to get to know Jesus. They begin to, to study his teachings. And then they, de, they begin to become more and more like Jesus. So that's the process of discipleship. So it's from the outset important that you embrace your identity as disciple. Please say this with me. I am a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's your turn. I am a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you mean it. I hope it's true. Every believer should be in the process of being a disciple, a learner, somebody who's growing, and also discipling, making disciples. You don't, you don't just do one or the other. Now, how does the church do discipleship? We're going to get to our Colossians passage in a few minutes, a little bit more introduction. We can see patterns in the Bible of discipleship. It happens on three different levels. First of all, you see large group discipleship. Jesus' large group ministry consisted of speaking to crowds, like we see in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And we see him teaching the multitudes of the 4,000 and of the 5,000 that he fed on the hillside. And we see a committed group of disciples. Uh, there are 72 that he sent out in Luke chapter 10. Additionally, there's a group of 120 believers claiming allegiance to Jesus after his death in Acts chapter 1. And they sometimes gathered at places, public places like the, the temple or at the portico of Solomon near the temple or uh, sometimes even in synagogues before they became outcasts. So we as a church, we practice large group discipleship in our worship services on Sundays. And here tonight, this is more of a large group discipleship opportunity where we're teaching and you're learning about Jesus People are called to become disciples through the preaching of the word, through sharing the gospel and calling people to repent and have faith in Jesus. People who are already disciples uh, are called to keep on learning, keep on growing as you are challenged with the preached word. Bible fellowship groups are a little bit smaller that meet on Sunday morning but uh, they still are probably more what we would call large group discipleship. But then we also see the pattern of small group discipleship in the Bible. Jesus called a group of 12 men, did he not? 
to leave their families, to leave their friends, their careers, to follow him. And subsequently, he invested the remainder of his ministry mentoring this group of 12 disciples. He also consistently took three disciples with him for intensive times of equipping. Uh, he took Peter, James, and John. We see that in Mark 3, 16 to 17 and Luke 6, 14. Our, we have a program called Discipleship Training Program, DTP, and it's intended to be uh, all more of a, say, like t a 12-person or so discipleship ministry. It's, it's not a large group, although when you first started here, I think there were like 80 people that went through it. But it's, it's intended to be a little bit more a uh, smaller group and then breaking up into smaller tables and, and that sort of thing. We have a pattern also of one-on-three small groups, which is what we're endeavoring to accomplish through a new discipleship ministry called Soul Care, where you go through journals, and uh, it's usually a group of four, one leader and three disciples. Then there's also the pattern of one-on-one -on -one discipleship. Sometimes Jesus definitely met with individuals, didn't he? He met with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And the Bible also highlights Jesus' intimate relationships with John and his restoration of Peter on the Sea of uh, Galilee in John chapter 21. This pattern of one-on-one -on -one discipleship is an ongoing ministry uh, established in chapter 2 of Timothy, Second uh, Timothy chapter 2 verses 2, where it says, "...the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. So, you know, there should be that pattern going on in the church that Paul gave to Timothy to keep on entrusting these things to the next person, the next generation, not just generations, but individuals even within the same generation. One-on-one -on -one discipleship can happen in informal times, conversations, having hospitality and having people over to uh, questions and answers, um, it can be more formal in counseling sessions uh, or other types of meetings. And you can have, uh, we, we've had one-on-one -on -one, uh, curriculum like partnership and, uh, or partners rather, and uh, fundamentals of the faith and, and other things like that. But the goal of all of this is what we're going to see in Colossians chapter 1 verses 28 and 29. And in verse 28 it says that the goal is to proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. The emphasis should be on every man or every person. This is what we want to make sure that a church has a way in which every single person is a disciple and a disciple maker. Every single one of you should be discipling and you should be growing as a disciple. Every single one of you. It's the Great Commission. It's, it's what the Bible teaches. That's why it's good for us to get back to that word. Disciple, not just Christian. Let me ask you this. Who are you being discipled by? Or maybe you have been discipled by. And who are you discipling today? 
In his letter to the Colossians, Paul writes two brief sentences from which I have drawn five fundamental principles of discipleship. No matter how narrow or broad our definition of discipleship, we must be aware of and not swerve from these principles. Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. Paul writes this, We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. The first principle is that the message for discipleship is to proclaim Jesus. We proclaim Him. I mean, if, if we're disciples of Jesus, that's who we should be talking about, right? We should be learning about Him. We should be telling people about Him. We should be getting to know Him better and we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and so we ought to be enamored with Him. We ought to be happy about Him. We ought to be encouraging one another with His teaching and with relationship to Him. We should want to grab each other and pray together for the things that we're going through in life because we know that it's only He that can help us. When you disciple other people, you need to talk to them a lot about Jesus. Verse 4 speaks of our faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 7 of the same chapter speaks of being a servant of Jesus Christ. So we need to talk to people about what we believe, about what our faith in Jesus is. And we ought to talk to people about how we should live as disciples, what we should be as a servant. So what to believe and how to live. Let me ask you, are you doing that? Are you talking to people about their faith in Jesus and what you believe about him? Are you talking to people about serving Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving him, loving your neighbor, and how that looks? A couple of major themes in Colossians are that Christ is Lord over all creation and that Christ is our Redeemer. Does that excite you? <laughs> okay. Um, just listen to all that Paul gives us to talk about, about Christ as the creator, chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's a lot to talk about, right? You get excited about that? Can you explain all that? Can you do that? Can you tell a new believer what it means that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? You need to. You need to be. If you've been a Christian for a long time and you can't do that, you may not even know where Colossians is. Shame on you. Can you tell people what the firstborn of all creation means? 
What about this mind-blowing truth? We, we know that God created everything, but here it says that Jesus did. How do you put that together? I think many of you know. What are the implications of that? What about these invisible things? What are they? And, and then thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, you mean he made them? Does that mean that he appointed all of the rulers of the world? And they have some purpose for him and that he's working the things out through them? And wow, these were not only created by him, but it says for him. Is everything for Jesus? Well, that changes things, doesn't it? Might blow your whole mind and change your whole perspective about everything. Hey, that, that'd be nice. And what is this? He, he's before all things. And what about in him all things hold together? Have you read that? You know, some, some Christians don't even read this stuff, let alone study to understand it. Many relegate these things to the pastor or the seminary professor. People want to be spoon-fed. It's fine to be in that large group discipleship. I can sit somewhere off by myself and I can hide in the crowd. I can listen. Oh, I'll live, you know, best I can. But what would you say if a new believer is asking you what these things mean? Have you studied them? Can you explain them? That's where we need to be. We need to be growing in that. Start wherever you're at. You know, if you feel convicted, you should. I feel convicted. I think, boy, I need to get to know that better. There's a lot more I can study. You know, there's lots of resources. There's lots of ways to do that. But we need to get busy. And what about proclaiming Christ as Redeemer? That was just all creator stuff, right? <laughs> now, now we have him as our Redeemer as well. In verse 13 it says, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Where is this domain of darkness? How did he rescue you? What, what did he rescue you from? What is the kingdom? Who is his beloved son? And what does redemption mean? And how significant is it to have the forgiveness of your sins? Those are things worth talking about. Verse 27, Paul says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ in me? is the hope of glory. And that sounds something that we need to be able to unpack and understand and grab hold of because I want hope. So discipleship should be Christ-focused. Now, let me free you from some fear. You don't have to be able to answer all these questions before you can ever disciple someone. No, that's part of you being a disciple. You're a disciple of the Lord Jesus and you use all the means that he has made available to you through teaching and relationships and your own personal studies. 
to learn these things, to grow in them. But there's always somebody that's going to be behind you. There's always people coming to know the Lord. He has his elect and he is calling them to himself. And so you're supposed to grow and then somebody else is supposed to come along and you disciple them. So just make sure you're keeping ahead of somebody. The second principle of discipleship is that the method for discipleship is admonishing and teaching with wisdom. Paul says in Colossians 1.28, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Scripture has a lot to say regarding how to make disciples, but Paul gives us some basic truths in this verse. He says, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom. We have three W's there. We have the word, we have a warning, and we have wisdom. It should be obvious, really, first of all, thinking about the word, that a disciple, if a disciple is one who learns, and he's supposed to be observing everything that Jesus has taught or commanded according to the Great Commission, then his word should be central to discipleship. It's interesting to me how many people come to this church and when I talk to them about uh, why they came here or sometimes what their experience has been, they often say, we're just amazed at how much you teach the word. Just how deep the teaching is on the word. And I always kind of respond, what else would we do? <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not very creative, I guess. You know? Uh, but sadly, that's the state of our church, of the churches today in our culture, is that they get away and they, they become wiser to God than God, they think. But remember that a Christian is a disciple, and a disciple is a person who learns. So... Paul emphasizes to these Colossians the word of God so much. And we'll just, I'll just give you a couple of passages. Chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your, the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope reserved for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world, also it is bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Notice he, he speaks there in, at the end of verse 5 about that they had heard the word of truth. And that tells us that the Bible, the God's word is truth. You have the truth. And that is the gospel. It's the good news which people have received. And he talks about that they have uh, heard this, they have believed it, and it says it is bearing fruit and increasing. So it's, it's the Word of God as you use it in your own life and in people's lives that you disciple, that that's what's going to bring the fruit. They're going to grow by the Word. And then uh, at the end of there it says truth again. It's the grace of God in truth. <clears throat> and notice Colossians 3.16. <clears throat> Colossians 3.16. 
Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The word of God should richly dwell within us. That means you've got to find all kinds of ways to, to take it in. It's got to be a daily practice to, to have that in your mindset and in your heart and your thoughts if you're going to grow as a believer. In our soul care series, uh, these journals that uh, the elders have put together <clears throat> involve taking chapters of Scripture. Amazing. Isn't that amazing? See how creative we are? You take chapters of Scripture and you read them and you, you see they cover common themes and you study those passages and meet together to discuss them and you seek to understand them and talk about them and apply them and encourage one another and pray for one another. Does that sound good? Now, Paul also mentions a, a second component of this method of discipleship. It is warning. This passage reveals that it's our responsibility not only to teach those whom we disciple the right way, but also to warn them that they're going the wrong way. You need somebody in your life to care enough about you to see that you're going in the wrong direction and help you turn around. Back in chapter 3, verse 16, it speaks of admonishing one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, Paul says, as, and we see that this is a common theme. He says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. In Romans 15, 14, and concerning you, my brothers and sisters, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all the knowledge and able to admonish one another. So admonition takes the word of God and explains what is proper behavior and improper behavior and helps somebody to see that they need to change, they need to be corrected. Out of love for those we disciple, we must not be silent when we see them headed in a tragic dis, uh, direction. 2 Timothy 4.2 is where Paul says, Correct, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. It's, it's part of the growth process. In addition to teaching the word and warning those we disciple, we also need to give believers wisdom. So we see Paul says in Colossians 1.28, that we, we teach and train everyone with all wisdom. It's one thing to know the word, to understand what it means. But the difficulty, maybe you can attest to this, is putting it into practice. Anybody have trouble with that? We face all kinds of circumstances and we need help thinking through this. That's the, the third component of, of the discipleship method. You, you want to help people have wisdom, wisdom for decision-making, how to put all the principles into practice. James chapter 1, verse 5 says that we should ask for wisdom. 
But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. As we disciple people, we need to continually ask the Lord for wisdom to be able to help somebody who needs the teaching and the growth and the accountability and those things. <clears throat> One of the greatest needs that people have, and, and I would say especially young people, is for somebody to come alongside and help them apply the truth of Scripture to their decision-making process. I love to see my wife, Myra, disciple young women. She has wisdom. And she helps especially young women, to, to know how to prepare for marriage. How do you prepare to be a wife and a mother? We need to be helping people do these things and many other things. You're already a wife, maybe, and be good to grab a hold of a lady and say, can you help me be a more godly wife? Men, young men especially, you need to grab somebody and say, Disciple me. Help me to be a more godly man in the workplace. Help me to be a more godly husband. Help me to be a more godly son. Help me to be a godly father. We need help. We need to learn. And, and no man is supposed to be a lone ranger Christian. We need the body of Christ. And that's what we see. We see this as an every man ministry, an every person ministry. Our third principle of discipleship tonight is that the measure for discipleship is to present everyone complete in Christ. Back in our verse 28, 29, he says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Not only does the book of Colossians emphasize that Christ's redeeming work saves his people, but it also teaches that through Christ's redeeming work, believers grow in maturity. And guess how you know that you don't need Jesus' discipleship anymore? You're complete, <laughs> you're perfect. Uh, you, you see him face to face, you know. the the change, the transformation has been complete. <clears throat> but that tells us something about the church, doesn't it? That we need to be committed to people for the long haul. We need to be committed to helping each other grow. That doesn't mean that you have to keep meeting with the same four people for your whole life. <clears throat> you hope that once you've met with them for a period of time and you, that they're able to grow to maturity and be able to disciple other people. Well, it's a principle of multiplication. But you do build bonds and relationships whereby you're always available to them and they're always available to you. And you encourage them. You, you hold them accountable to go and make disciples as well. The goal of people becoming complete in Christ gives us two descriptions of the discipleship process. This, this measure for discipleship is done in a couple of different ways. First, it's through the process of perfecting. The goal of disciples is not just to make converts. 
and not to just make converts that make converts. It's, it's for all believers to become increasingly like Jesus, right? True discipleship involves investing in younger believers, walking through life with them, and shepherding them to Christian maturity. Paul later gives an example of Epaphras. He's one who uh, is concerned about the growth process of the Colossian believers. In chapter 4, verse 12, he says, <clears throat> Epaphras, who is one of your own, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, sends you his greeting, always striving earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Notice what Epaphras does first. He, he prays for them. He prays earnestly for them that they would be mature and fully assured in the will of God. We should want to do that. We should want to help people and pray for them to grow and be able to stand on their own two feet. To have maturity, to have consistency in life so that they could then disciple other people. Paul writes this in 1 Peter 2, 1-3. Therefore rid yourself of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. The discipleship process is a growing process. Are you, you should ask yourself first, am I craving the milk of the world, word that I may grow by? And then those who you reach out to disciple, that's a good question. Are they craving the milk of the word to grow thereby? It would be unusual for there to be a Christian here that is discipling somebody. Now I think that's more true in many churches, many churches I've been to, I've never, you never even hear anything more than just large group discipleship. What we want is for this church, Pastor Scott's vision was at first was, was to make us to be a Christ-centered church. And I think we're well on the way to being that. But we also want there to be a designation of us that we're a disciple-making church. And I would love to come and step into this pulpit one day and I would say, now those you are discipling, and everybody would know exactly who that means. Every single one of you would have people in your mind all of a sudden when I say, now those you, who you are discipling, dot, dot, dot. And every one of you would say, oh, I mean, yeah, that means Jim Sheila or Aaron or whoever it might be. The second description of discipleship is parenting. So we have perfecting. It's a perfecting process. It's also like a parenting process. Throughout the scripture, discipleship is compared to parenting, and the two have amazing parallels. It is appropriate to see yourself as sort of a spiritual parent, spiritual father, spiritual mother to those that you disciple. <clears throat> like a good mother, you're to seek to nurture and love those who you lead. Like a good father, you're to seek to meet their needs and encourage them to live lives worthy of their calling. And 
1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says, But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. In the same way, we have a fond affection for you, and we're delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. <clears throat> Notice all those terms of endearment. This, he talks about affection and caring for and sharing truth and even giving of their very lives. <clears throat> that would be a good mindset to develop, that I want to give my very life for other people to be more like Jesus. <clears throat> Paul calls... Timothy, his true child in the faith. The Apostle John calls those believers that he writes to sometimes his children. There's, there's a real affection there. In our parenting of our eight children, we have, uh, we have sought to give them the tools that they could take and grow in to live lives on their own. We've cared for them physically and emotionally and intellectually and spiritually and perhaps other ways. But the goal has always been to raise them from dependence to greater and greater levels of independence. And your hope is that they would leave the home and be able to stand firm on their own being successful in all the different areas of life. Good Good parents want to love and raise children. And that's the same thing, the same goal that we have in discipleship. Is that you want them to be fully assured themselves. And be able to stand on their own. And to be mature. And then to disciple others. The fourth principle of discipleship is that the mentality for discipleship is that it is hard work. Just like we talked about parenting. Parenting's hard work, amen? <laughs> Listen to Paul, Colossians 1.29. He says, in the ESV it says, For this I toil and struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The New American Standard says, For this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. The description that he gives is, is toil, Struggle, work, striving, labor. You know, this, this is not easy. And the Greek word that's translated labor in this passage, uh, in a lexicon, you can look it up and it says, to grow weary, tired, exhausted, or to exert one physically, mentally, or spiritually. The word for struggle here is often used to describe a, a strenuous exertion, sometimes used in an athletic competition or a, or a fight. <clears throat> Paul fought and labored to the point of exhaustion to bring believers into maturity in Christ. Like most things, valuable things, things that are worth it require energy time, and work. It is costly. When I commit to discipling somebody, I know that I shouldn't enter into it glibly or quickly 
or too easily because I am committing myself to something very important that's going to take a lot of prayer, study, preparation for the meeting time, the time it will take to meet, getting together, having that talk and study together, talking about application of these principles and accountability, and then trying to stay in touch with these men. It's what we're supposed to do, but it's something we have to count the cost for. And by the way, if you get somebody to commit to discipling you, it shouldn't be something that you just easily back away from. There's so many people that uh, start out and don't finish. Let me just mention the temptation you need to fight, though. It's the idol of ease. Our culture loves comfort and ease of life. It teaches us to believe that if we are uncomfortable and strained, then something is wrong. And if we function under this lie, it will lead to half-hearted or no discipleship at all. Let's just be honest. We love pleasure. It's easy. It's easy to do what you have to do. Maybe you work. Maybe you say, well, you know, I serve in this particular ministry. You know, I go to church and I serve in there. But I think the call of God is way beyond that. It's way beyond I want us to think about going to bed every night tired, not just from work. Maybe you already do this and you haven't even entered into discipleship, but, but think about it. You know, it's so easy to have a pattern of life that doesn't have this as part of it. And it's what being a Christian is all about. Living for Jesus, loving him, being part of the body of Christ, desiring for people to grow into maturity in Christ. Who are you helping in doing this? <clears throat> the last principle of discipleship is number five is that the muscle for discipleship is his power. <laughs> I just talked about how much hard work it is, right? And how much of a cost it's going to give. Well, then... I'm not sufficient for these things, right? We're the, the clay pots. We're, we're brittle. We're, we're frail. We are weak. So we need his power. Paul says that he labors and strives, but what follows those words is very important. He says, for this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. You can know that if God is calling us to do something, he's going to give us the power to do it. He's going to accomplish it. In all of the Christian life, there is this confidence, which Paul refers to in chapter 2 of Philippians, verse 12. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. All that it takes to grow and be more like Christ, all of the teaching, the learning, the discipling, our uh, conformity to Christ... You work hard. But verse 13, 
For it is God who is at work in you, both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. Another translation is to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who is at work in you. There is so much comfort in that. He's at work in me to change me. And as you disciple, I, I tell Myra, <laughs> this, sometimes I, I say, I, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of scared if people start asking me questions. What if I don't have the answers? Yes, pastors and seminary professors feel that way too, you know. But the person is not dependent upon me ultimately for their growth in Christ. It is his power that's going to accomplish this. Even if I don't have an answer, and even if you, if you don't have an answer, if we look at that Colossians passage and you go, boy, I hope nobody asks me those questions. I usually say, let me get back to you. If it's a hard question, I don't try to just off the cuff wing it. But I'll say, let's study this. Let's look at it. Let's get back to it. <clears throat> the danger that we might have in discipleship is dependence on ourselves. But that's where we always have to strive for dependence upon him. We want to be seen as a... In our lives, we want to be seen what is true where the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the extraordinary greatness of the power will be of God, not from ourselves. So be discipled, be a discipler, but let God get the glory. That's what we're doing is we're, we're proclaiming Christ and we're wanting him to receive all the glory for how we turn out and for how those we disciple turn out. And we know that he's going to finish. We're confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. So with all that said, all these principles of discipleship, many of you are probably thinking, where do I start? And how do I do this? Well, we've, as I mentioned before, we've developed a small group discipleship ministry called Soul Care. It's a series of 15 journals that are designed for a small group discipleship. And we currently have 75 men going through the first round. The plan is by God's grace, that each of these men in turn would take others through this material and on and on through the process of multiplication. Wouldn't it be amazing if we had a church where every single person is either going through or has gone through small group discipleship or maybe one-on-one -on -one discipleship. <clears throat> the plan also, this week, we've just begun identifying some women to get this started for, uh, for women of the church to be able to start discipleship groups as well. And, you know, I, I anticipate that that might be a month or so. 
If you desire to be discipled or you desire to disciple, please let me or some other elder or some leader know. Perhaps we'll even start having some sign-up sheets. Uh, I'm not sure exactly the process, but we want to continue to encourage that our church will be a discipling church. Every single person will be growing in conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, I'm going to pray and then I have one announcement before you leave. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that uh, you have called us to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have given us his word. All that he has commanded according to the Great Commission. And we're to learn how to practice it. I pray that you would grip the hearts of people tonight. Maybe sometimes to many people this is a new thought. That I'm a disciple of Christ. That I'm a, I'm a learner. I'm, I'm to follow him. <clears throat> Maybe for somebody that's the first time they've, they've come to think about following Jesus. But... For those of us who have been following you, Lord, maybe it's a new thought that we are to disciple others and how that would actually work, what, what it would look like. Well, help them, Lord, to, to find out and be able to participate in the great joy and excitement there is, although it's hard work of discipling other believers. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat>